0: And as we get there, in Luke chapter 4, you'll see, and remember from last week if you were here with us, that we looked at Jesus as he was tempted right after his baptism. Now Jesus, when he was tempted, he was tempted in the same way that the first Adam was, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And it's really the same gambit that Satan runs every time, but Jesus, being the second Adam, Instead of hiding himself during that temptation and and after falling to it, Jesus doesn't fall to the temptation and he actually is able to withstand it because he trusts not in himself or in his flesh or in his own strength or in his own wisdom, but he trusts in the Word of God and he quotes from Deuteronomy and we looked at that. But what we have this week is we have him actually kind of, now that his ministry has started, We continue to see Jesus's life as he is stepped down into humanity and he takes on human flesh and he meets us in our need as our savior who would set us free from sin and bondage. And that's our that's our ultimate need. But what we're going to see today is that he's going to meet some practical needs. But before that, we're going to look at his rejection because scripture says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, we're going to start there. To get ourselves a little bit more up to speed into the context that Mark gives us, we look at what happened since his temptation in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says that he came to Nazareth. Well, we didn't end in the the temptation. We actually ended with him picking out four disciples. Peter, who was Simon, Andrew, John, and James. But as he's picked these guys, there's some other things that have taken place, but we're not going to really go there because in Matthew, it actually talks, or excuse me, in John, he actually ends up spending some time and he goes to a wedding feast. And of course, he's well known for doing this first miracle he performs by changing water into wine. Everyone seems to remember that one. But in in Luke, we actually read this passage. passage. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, and he was halfway through the verse, because the next part of the verse says to declare the day of vengeance for our God, but in his first coming, he didn't come for that. He came to do all those things we just read about. His second coming will be the day that he declares his vengeance, and he actually, you know, his wrath is poured out on those who, who didn't surrender their lives to him, who didn't answer his call. And so, Then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, today, the scripture, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So imagine that you go to a Bible study, a man opens it up and he says to you, I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, if it would happen today's day and age and they said that they were Jesus, we'd know you're not Jesus. Jesus already came. But that's what happened a man came into their Bible study one day. It was just like any other Bible study. And he opened up the prophecy and he said, I'm the guy. I'm this guy. And so all bore witness to him, it continues, and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, See, what happened is if one guy came in here and read a prophecy and said, This is me, I'm the guy. Everyone in here, if he was from Ironton, Missouri, would go, no, you're not, because I know you. You live down the street from me. So imagine what they're going through. Give them a little credit. I mean, we'd be a little skeptical, too, if this were to happen. So because they say that, he responds to them. He says to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal thyself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also in your country. In other words, from where you're from. See, he's in Nazareth, and that's his hometown. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is is accepted in his own country. But I tell you, truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but none of them was Elijah sent to except to Zarephath. In the region of Sidon, that was a woman that he was sent to to minister to. And there was a famine going on, and he actually got to be a part of making sure that she had food. Well, she was a Gentile, you see. She wasn't Jewish. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, and so he's giving them two examples here of people that were affected by Elijah, who they held in high esteem, and Elisha, his, his, uh, his, uh, the one who took up his mantle after him, And when when they came in, when Elisha did the same thing, it says to a woman who was a widow, but many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. So these were Gentiles. And so Jesus is explaining these prophets were sent and you didn't receive them, but I sent them to the Gentiles. There was many people that were Jewish that were in those needs. But Jesus said, I sent those prophets to the Gentiles. So all those that were in the synagogue were outraged. When they heard these things were filled with wrath, they rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over a cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So they take him out to the edge of the city. And a lot of their cities, and I don't know if it's the case in this one, they would when it would be destroyed, they would just build on top of it. They wouldn't remove all the rubble. They'd just pour another foundation and start over. Well, it seems to me that there was a hill around, and they pushed them out to the edge of that city, and they said, we, we don't want anything to do with you to the point of we're going to kill you by pushing you off the edge. They're kicking them out of town, basically. Don't let the door hit you in the backside. So as he, as they do that, this passage from Luke, we get a clear picture of the background, Because they didn't receive him. He came to his own, and they didn't receive him. Jesus himself was Jewish. He came to the people that were supposed to bring him into the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and they didn't receive him. Even though they had all of the prophecy that was foretelling his coming, they didn't receive him. So they led him to the brow of that hill, and they tried to kill him. Now, now it appears that Jesus, all he did was somehow, he just walked back out of the crowd, and they didn't even know he left. He left. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't have that skill. Apparently, the Messiah does. So it wasn't his time to be killed yet, obviously. Otherwise, he would have been. So with this passage from Luke, we get that clear picture. It appears that Jesus, after submitting to his father by identifying with sinful man and being baptized and then enduring the temptation like we looked at last week, just as we are tempted, he was tempted in all points, Hebrews says, but in all points, he was found to be worthy. He, he didn't succumb to any of those temptations, so he can relate with you and I in all the ways that we're tempted. So when we cry out to him, he's able to relate. We talked about that last week. Who wants a king, who wants a leader that can't relate to my suffering or my trials? You know, when we cry out to him, we're able to say, Hey, I'm being tempted. You know, somebody's trying to get me to do this thing. And he can look at us every time and go, I know, I've been there. And we have that in scripture to tell us that and encourage us. So with this passage from Luke, we get a clear picture of that background, and it brings us to the passage that we're at today in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, if you want to go ahead and turn there. It appears that Jesus, after submitting to this and going through the temptation, then returns to the hometown in Nazareth, where he explains to them from the passage in Isaiah that they knew and they had what he came to do amidst his people. And if there was any uncertainty to what he just proclaimed, he removes all doubt by saying with all certainty of his statement, by saying plainly, today this scripture is fulfilled, and you're hearing, I'm God, I'm the guy. So, a lot of people say that. Well, you know, I've read the Bible before, he never, Jesus doesn't say that he's God, and he absolutely does, and you will see that all the way through the Gospels. He claims to be God constantly, and and that's why they wanted to kill him. They thought he was blaspheming. So, At this statement, they immediately start to question whether he could really be the one to come and fulfill the prophecy, and they say, is this not Joseph's son? Now, verse 21, then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and he taught, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So you'll notice here, and I almost missed this, even me, I looked at this passage and I thought, well, it's the same thing in Luke chapter 4. But it's not. He's in a different location. He was speaking in Luke chapter 4 in Nazareth. Now he has left and he's gone to Capernaum. And Ezra, if you could kick forward just a slide or two, there's a map. On the upper right hand, there's the Sea of Galilee. And it's really small. I apologize for that. But if you see, Capernaum is at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And Nazareth is down to the southwest. Now in between there, there's Cana, which we see Tiberius, I think. But he goes directly from Nazareth to Capernaum. And this is where we're going to find out that he sits up his ministry headquarters because he goes there and he's received. But it's the same exact thing. He goes there and they were astonished. He said that, in, in uh, they were astonished when he was in Nazareth, his hometown, but here they're astonished, and it's a completely different response because they're not just astonished outwardly. They're not just blown away by what he had to say because he's just some guy they knew growing up, but they're blown away because not only is he teaching, but he's teaching with authority, and he doesn't teach as the scribes. Now, it says here that they were astonished, and it's because in, uh, excuse me, their astonishment was at Jesus's authority when teaching produced different, excuse me, stop, rewind. Jesus ends up ministering all the way around the Sea of Galilee from this point. So now we've read that it says in verse 22, I'm back to the right where I'm supposed to be. They were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who having authority and not as the scribes. But what does that mean? He had authority. The policeman down the road has authority. And you know that because he's carrying a gun. But what gives Jesus his authority is himself. He came from the Father to preach. He came to do all the things we just read in Luke chapter 4. His authority doesn't come from him wielding a big gun. It comes from the fact that he's God. And he's able to make claims like, I'm the guy that fulfills this. And so when he teaches, they listen. The scribes, however, and the Pharisees, they taught from the Mosaic law, and they spent most of their time quoting extensively from the writings of other rabbis or other teachers rather than give their own interpretations of the scriptures. So when Jesus just explains the scripture and what they mean, you could see that this would be much different. It was a completely different uh, style of teaching. So verse 23, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, Another word for demon, basically. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Simple phrase, right? And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. So it seems that during the worship service, that was taking place in the synagogue. Jesus gets up to speak, and there was a man who was possessed by a demon. We know that this kind of thing actually does happen. Just because someone is in church does not make them a Christian. I think that's a, a, that's a, a big thing that we think. Well, you know, are you a Christian? Well, I go to church? And I used to say the same thing, and I understand it. Because you equate your showing up as that you are something. But the problem with that is that if you go with the same logic and you say, I'm at McDonald's, does that make you a cheeseburger? If I'm in an airplane, does that make me a pilot? No, not necessarily, right? So in the same way, if you're sitting in a church chair or a pew or whatever it might be, it doesn't mean you're a Christian. So because of that, there's this man who has this issue. He's possessed by a demon. Now, it's good that people come into church that aren't Christians. I want to make that clear because Jesus wants people to hear his word. That's why he's given it to us in this canon, this this volume that we can carry around. We're very blessed to have all of that. But if we don't read it and actually try to unpack it, we're missing out on the treasure. If we have a backyard full of gold and we never dig past the, the first layer and we spend all our time mowing the grass, do we have any treasure? No, we just have a backyard that we spend all our time cutting the grass we miss out on the gold and so scripture is the same way i say that because i i had a bible uh the entire time i went to college i never read it it collected dust and it was it was always there it's like a constant reminder like hey this is here but because i didn't open it it didn't have any power in my life And because i didn't read it god didn't have any way to to purge the sin out of my life so <clears throat> When God is doing a work, there's always going to be an opposition work by Satan. Do you realize that when you sign up to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the first thing you do is you say, I'm no longer going to follow the ways of my flesh. I'm no longer going to be directed by Satan because Satan is against God. I think we should all know that Satan is against God. And so when you sign up to follow Christ, you say, I'm against Satan. It's you're not like for you're you're either for God or you're against him. And when you sign up to be for God, what happens is there's all of a sudden this spiritual battle that we don't know that goes on behind the scenes. So God reveals this to us by showing us this in this example. As an aside, where light is, there can be no darkness. If you've been set free and saved by the blood of Jesus, he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell you. And where the Holy Spirit is, there can be no demonic possession. A lot of people think that, you know, you can be possessed by evil spirits as a Christian. You cannot. If you have the Lord, you have His Holy Spirit, and where that is, you can't be tormented. You can't be affected by Satan. That being said, this man was in the synagogue during a worship service and caused a great disturbance. And, and notice in verse 24 that the demon is this man... And he had the, this demon had a power over this man's faculties, everything that he said and did. And he spoke to Jesus and he testified that he knew who he was and what he could do to them. They were testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a good thing, right? It's true. And also that he's the Holy One of God. James chapter 2 deals with this, though. Because, and he's talking about faith versus works. But I'm going to read uh, just a real quick quote uh, from James chapter 2, verse 14 through 20. It should be on the screen. It says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for their body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, but I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's the fruit. You believe that there's one God, and you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. They're afraid of him. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So the point being there is that The demons profess that God, that Jesus is the Son of God and that He's the Holy One of God. But that doesn't do anything for them because they still rebel against Him. But Jesus' response to this demon, these demons, was a straight-up rebuke. Rebuke simply means that Jesus admonished. He straight-up forbid the demon to speak. God does not deal lightly with His enemies here. Why did He not allow the demon to speak? There probably isn't just one reason, but one of the reasons, there are many instances where Jesus tells people, people, not just demons, but not to reveal who he is because it's not his time to be taken over and to be taken to the cross yet to die. But in this case, Jesus refuses the testimony of a demon. They say that all press is good press. Well, apparently that's not the case because Jesus doesn't want the press of some demon that's against him. He wants someone to have a changed life, which is the best billboard for Satan, Or excuse me, excuse me. It's the best billboard for for the work of God in someone's life. Apparently, Jesus saw that the testimony of this demon was a a bad press, and he he doesn't need that testimony. Some will confess it willingly. Have you guys heard the phrase, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father? Well, that's true for everyone. When it says everyone will confess that, it's everyone. But on judgment, on that day, when everyone confesses, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, there will be a group that will confess it willingly. Those who called upon the name of Jesus and walked with Him daily, they'll have no problem with that. And there will be another group that didn't confess His name, and because of that, they'll confess it anyway, because at that time, they'll realize this was the Savior. This was the one that God sent to redeem me. And there will be tears. They'll confess that He's Lord, and they'll bow their knee, but it will be unwillingly. Some of them will be gnashing of teeth. So again, we see Jesus exercises authority in this example. This time he shows his authority over principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The demonic and the dark spiritual forces are just as real as the shoes that you're wearing today. You know, a lot of people downplay the fact that there is a spiritual thing going on behind the scenes that we can't see. But it's it's real, it's true. Actually, uh, we see a lot of this in some of the pagan religions, some of the occult. When you uh, partake in, in lots of drugs, uh, you're actually opening yourself, whether you realize it or not, to a spiritual world. Uh, the word is pharmakia, and it just means that you know it's it's a spiritual thing. It's not just some substance that you're taking in your body, but it's actually something that you're doing to open yourself up to be inhabited. You're opening yourself up. Now, as a Christian, you shouldn't be doing that stuff anyway, but as a Christian, you shouldn't have to worry about that. So this time, he shows authority. And uh, the, the same is true with any sin. We often give in to what sin promises us, which is our decisions and everything we do. It starts to, anything that we do that is sin, starts to rule over us. We, it promises us that it will give us something. Think about what we studied last week, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the, the temptation to feel good, look good, and uh, be good. It promises us some sort of fulfillment. But what the enemy does is he promises us something through sin. And we're tempted. And, of course, we talked about the fact that we have desires in us that draw us away. So we do start to partake in those sins. But the problem is, is those sins promise fulfillment, but they're a leaky cistern. They're, they're like a well. They're like a pool that has a crack in it. What it promises us is fulfillment, but in order to keep that fulfillment going, we have to keep that pool full. You know, If you have a pool in your backyard in the summer and it's super hot and you live in a super hot climate, it it evaporates all the time, right? But you want to have fun, so you fill the thing back up. Well, that's what sin does. It promises us that we can enjoy it all we want, but it takes from us more than it offers. Well, God doesn't do that. He calls himself a wellspring of life. And he is. He's a fountain. You guys ever see a a natural spring? Water is always coming out. You never have to put anything in it to keep it for later. And that's what God is. He's a wellspring of life. 1 John 4, 4 says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you've been born again, then you are a legitimate child of God, and because of that, he is in you, and he is greater than Satan, he who is in the world. That's who it's talking about. Therefore, there is no reason to fear, but if you are not a legitimate child of God, you're in danger of being driven and tossed by every wind of teaching, everything that comes along, every new thing. The sin that ensnares you and rules you promises to fill you up and ends up taking everything from you until you're all used up. While Jesus promises to fill you up, And give you what you need. He calls us to serve him. But he also tells us, hey, when you serve me, I'm going to give you what you need to serve me. I'm going to charge your batteries. Verse 27. Then they, those who witnessed this, were all amazed. Who wouldn't be amazed by this? This is miraculous. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now, I showed you that map before, and it's probably not up now, but that region around Galilee is is a huge region. What we find is that, um, actually, let's uh, make it, I guess there's about 200 cities there that have about 15,000 people in them, average. And I, 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 of course, because I'm an engineer, I added them all up, and there's, that, that adds up to three million people. We think of Israel, we think of an, a small area like it is, and we don't think about there being three million people, but there's three million people in the regions around um, the Sea of Galilee. So if you take the 2011 census number for the amount of people in Ironton, it's 1,464. Thank you, Google, right? So now that we know that, we can multiply that times about. Uh, let's see, I wrote it down so I didn't have to do it on the fly. One of those two hundred cities has ten times as many people as Ironton. That's a lot of people, right? And then there's three million in the whole region. So if the word spread amongst three million people, that that's that's pretty quick. It's like a game of telephone, except the right words got out. Hopefully, right? Word of mouth. Well, they didn't have the internets. They didn't have Facebooks. They didn't have all that stuff. So everyone's telling each other. So I don't know what my point was with that. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Though Jesus rebuked the demon and told him not to testify that he was the son of God, Jesus' fame spread anyway. He didn't need that negative press. His works testified for themselves. That's true for Christians. Somebody said one time, they said, uh, Preach the gospel, and if need be, use words. Well, actually, it also says in Scripture, Go ye therefore and preach to all nations. So it is need be. We do need to use our words. But the best billboard is a changed life. And if we see a changed life, like this guy, and later we'll see, I think it's in Mark chapter 5 or so, a demon-possessed man that everyone knew because he was weird, hanging out around the tombs, and his clothes were all torn, and he would moan. They would chain him up, and he would break his chains. Everybody knew that guy. But when Jesus touches him and frees him from this legion of demons, which means there were many, everyone gets to hear the gospel in a place called Decapolis, which was ten cities. It was a metropolis area. So a billboard is the best way for the Lord to do it, and he does it in you and I. Our changed lives are what preach Jesus to people more than what we say. We're supposed to use our words, but if our actions and our lives don't match up, then it's all for naught. It's all in vain. So what we see here is this word spreading, and because it spreads, Jesus becomes famous. And I want you to think about that. Because we we live in a place in a time when you can turn on the TV, especially late at night, and you can see these televangelists that are that are saying, hey, you know, send me your money and I'll send you a prayer cloth. And look at all these healings I'm doing on TV. But real miracles will not make that guy famous. They'll make Jesus famous. Everyone will know that it was the Lord's work. And in this case, everyone knows that because they all flock to him. They don't flock to that church, they don't flock to that guy. They flock to Jesus because he's the source, he's the life giving source here. So meanwhile, they leave the synagogue and they go to Jesus and his four disciples that he has with him, they go to Peter's place. And it makes sense because he's from that area. They've just spent all this time ministering. They're going to go get some rest. And so they go to Peter and Andrew's house. Verse 29. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. Now, wait a minute. Simon Peter had a wife. That's interesting. Isn't he supposed to be the first pope? Well, it seems to me that Simon Peter was a married man. He wasn't a devout Uh, he wasn't a celibate, he had a wife. So Simon's wife, that was just an aside, but Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever and they, they told him about her at once. The first thing they did was they told Jesus. So he came and he took her by the hand, he lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she served them. That was her response. So often it's overwhelming to think about how God desires to reach the whole world. For God so loved the world, the entire world. That's so many people. What is it? Seven billion now. That's we can't even fathom what that means. I can't fathom seeing a thousand four hundred sixty-four people in one room, and and trying to in, in equip them or minister to them or teach the word to them or try to get to know even ten of them. It's it's hard work. Having an individual relationships with people is is a hard work, but the Lord, so oftentimes what he uses is not so much like, hey, let's go out and do a crusade. He uses guys like Billy Graham to do that. But on the backside of a Billy Graham crusade are lots of people beforehand and after praying for the people that will hear the gospel. And then he sets up churches in each town he goes to that they can go once they get saved and get discipled. So Jesus says he's got these guys. He goes with them everywhere they go. When our lives change and we start walking with Jesus daily, living in His presence and constantly depending upon Him, what you'll find is that everywhere you go, the Lord goes with you. You take Him with you. He's in you. He's teaching you. You become more like Him. And as you do that, the people that you live with will be the first ones to notice. So we know that because in this passage, that's what happens. Uh, Peter goes home with Andrew and Jesus is with them, James and John too, And they meet up with, it says here, Simon's, mother's, uh, Simon's wife's mother, so his mother-in-law. And she's sick. And the first thing that they do is they say, hey, Jesus, she's sick. And so what he does is he goes over there and he picks her up. He heals her. And her direct response is to serve. This isn't like he gave her Tylenol or aspirin. She had a headache or a fever, and she slowly started to feel better, and over the course of two weeks, she was able to go back to work. She was ready, and she was perfect right then. He picked her up. He touched her. One says that he rebuked. Luke chapter 4 says it rebuked. He rebuked the cold or the fever, but what we know is that she was better right away, and that's how we know it's miraculous and it's not something that happens every day. The first response that we should have in any trial or turmoil or instance, if whether we can do something or not, oftentimes people will come to you or they come to me, and they're like, hey, I, I, have this, I have this personal need. Can you help me with this? Can you help me remove the refrigerator from my house? You know, practical stuff. And whether we can help them or not, we should always pray for them. One of the first things that God wants us to do is to be dependent upon Him. Sometimes He might tell us not to go help. Does that make any sense? No, not to us, but he might want to bless somebody else. Maybe somebody else is supposed to go help him. We can't meet every need. But to pray about it, first and foremost, that God would meet their practical needs so he can meet them in their spiritual need is oftentimes what God wants to do. And that's what we're seeing that he's doing in this chapter. It's called intercession. When you pray for someone and you lift them up before the Lord and you, you intercede upon their behalf, it's just a fancy word for saying you're praying for them. If you say you're going to pray for somebody, do it. Do it right then. Oftentimes what happens is we say that we'll pray for someone, and we don't because we forget. There's lots of people, and people say that all the time. Pray for me, you know, or my thoughts are with you. But if they ask you to pray for them, pray for them right then. Be with them. Be Jesus with some skin on them right there in the moment where they're saying, hey, I got this need. Oftentimes people will never bring you their need unless they're in the middle of it, and it's bothering them right then. So why not bring the Lord? When you pray for somebody and you're with them, what you do is you remind them, if they're not a believer, that you believe in God so much that you want to bring him right into the situation. Well, that's what Peter is doing right here. He prays, excuse me, he intercedes to the Lord because he's gotten there physically, and he says, hey, can you meet my mother-in-law this need? i belabored that enough. Verse 32. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him, like we talked about before. He wanted bad testimony. But what we see here, they didn't come until evening, and a lot of people are like, well, why? Why didn't you come to evening? I asked the same question. They did not come until evening because... We think about our culture, we go, okay, Sunday morning starts when the sun comes up, right? When well, that culture, the day ends and a new day begins as soon as the sun sets. So on the Sabbath, they were not allowed to go so far from their house because it was considered work. And whether it was exactly right according to the law or not, they weren't supposed to be doing work. And so many of them would live really close to the synagogue so they could stay within however many steps they were supposed to be. But in the meantime, word had spread about this demoniac, this person possessed by a demon that had been set free. And so because of that, people start hearing that testimony and they start showing up. Can you imagine if the entire city of Ironton shows up at your door? Can you imagine if the whole Arcadia Valley said, this guy got healed, let's all go check it out. And they showed up at your house. That'd be kind of overwhelming. Seems here that Jesus took it under stride. He took it as an opportunity to bless the people, to show them that the Lord had come to do these works that we read about in Luke 4. But the the question always gets asked by someone, though, does Jesus still do this kind of work today? And I think it's a valid question. Oftentimes we think about that and we think, well, I've never seen anybody be healed miraculously. How can Jesus be a miracle worker? Well, the answer is, is that, yes, he does heal. Oftentimes we just don't ask. James says we have not because we ask not, and even when we do pray, we ask for the wrong thing, and Jesus just wants us to depend upon him, and so when we pray and we ask him to heal somebody, pray. He can do it. This passage is a, is a direct, uh, you know, we can trust this. He's able to do it. It's a testimony. Mark wrote this down, not going, hey, I hope people believe this. I didn't see it. He wrote it down because he, he witnessed it. And he saw Jesus heal, and, he, and Peter did as well. Peter is telling Mark some of the stories that Mark wasn't there before. But we know that Jesus is able to heal. But here's my other question. Does he always heal? And a lot of people say, well, if you have enough faith, then he will heal you. God's will will be done. But that seems to be like maybe God can't work through a situation without healing somebody. Kind of acts like he's not able to get glory unless he heals somebody. Let me tell you, sometimes God gets the most glory by not healing someone, and then they're able to use, he's able to use even their life for mighty works. There was a a lady my wife was telling me about, she was reading a book, I think it was, uh, was it the Corey Tin Boom book? And uh, it wasn't her her biography, but it was another one, and it was called Tramp for the Lord. But there's a story in there about a woman who has MS. And uh, it's this thing where you aren't able to use all your faculties anymore because um, it's based. I'll I'll compare it to this. It's like if you have a, a short in your car, if all your wires, I got in a wreck one time, another segue, I got in a wreck one time and, and when I impacted the car in front of me, it smashed the battery. And when it smashed the battery, all the acid poured out over the wiring harness in my car. And so they had to replace the whole thing because all those wires, all the, the shielding was gone and they were all crossed. And because they were all crossed, the, the PC or the ECM didn't know what to tell the motor to do and all the ignition coils and all that. And so the thing can't run because all the wires are crossed. Same in your house. If your wires is crossed, your lights won't turn on. The, all the power will go in a different direction. Well, in the body, that same thing can happen. And this woman, because of all the, the, the sheathing, basically, is gone from their nerves and then it crosses and then you lose the ability to control your body in a precise manner. And so the only thing I think she could use was one finger and her arm. And everybody goes, well, if she's a servant of the Lord, why isn't he taking care of her? Well, do you know what he used her for? To take a bunch of Corrie ten Boom's books, her testimonies of what the Lord had done in her life, and to translate them to a different language with one finger at a time. She did that her entire life. Now, a lot of people go, well, what does that matter? Well, it matters because lots of people are reading those books still today. That was 50 years ago. So God can use you whether you've been healed or not. But in this case, he chooses to heal this man. Excuse me. He chooses to heal all these people for his glory because he's got a specific ministry. He was told in Isaiah that he would do this. This is what he would fulfill. And he didn't, by the way, heal every person he came into contact with. In the beginning of Acts, there's this man that Peter and another man come into contact with, he's sitting at the gate of this place that Jesus went in and out of all the time. And it says of him that he spent most of his life sitting in front of that place, and he was, he was lame. He couldn't walk. And he was asking for alms. Was he blind or was he lame? Anybody? He was lame. Thank you. So, because he was lame, he couldn't walk and so he couldn't work. And so he was asking for alms. He was asking for somebody to give him a handout so he could buy food. And Peter walks up and he's seen his Savior do the same thing. He walks up and he says, Look, I really don't have any money. I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, raise up and walk. And the man did. So, Jesus didn't heal everybody. But in this case, even in that case, he left it so later they could see that the power of God was still at work, and he's still at work today. But we have to pray always in faith, asking that God would heal because he's able, but at the same time praying, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done, because maybe he wants to use somebody to type books. Maybe he wants to use somebody to pray and intercede. Maybe he just wants to use somebody for his glory that has joy, even though from the outside, because they're confined to their home, it looks like they have no reason to have it. Maybe he can get more glory from them that way. John chapter 2, verse 24 through 25 says, as Jesus' fame spread, it would be oftentimes we would think, well, he's going to get puffed up and prideful. and No doubt, I would. But it says in John chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, that uh, he didn't commit himself. As the crowds grow and his fame spreads more and more, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. He knew that we were sinful. And so he was, though the crowds were coming in him and he was healing people, he didn't commit himself to them. He wasn't worried about being famous. He wanted God to get the glory. Jesus was sent to preach the gospel to the poor in spirit, to heal the brokenhearted, to set captives free, to restore sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. And today, today I tell you that there is no need that you have that he's not able to meet. Have you asked him to meet you in your situation and be Lord over it? Have you asked him to touch someone else that you've been praying for that is suffering? Have you brought others to him that are not able to overcome what oppresses them? In all these situations, he is the answer. That's what he's showing us as he's showing us not so much what he said, but what he did. In this passage, it is his miracles that attracted the multitudes to him. And they were for his compassion. He was showing compassion. God was showing compassion on suffering, our suffering humanity. And each one of us has suffered in some way or another. But the Lord wants to show us that he wants to meet us in those suffering moments and to show us that he is strong enough. His, His grace is sufficient. His light and their understanding for His compassion on suffering humanity is just beginning to shine here in Mark. But the full truth is that He cares for us way more than just our physical infirmities and our weaknesses. More so, He cares for our eternal predicament. These practical and visible ways that He met people in their hour of need were avenues to show them that He, the Son of Man, was able to help them deal with their personal eternal problem the sins that were going to separate them from God eternally. He was way more interested in that. What good does it do, you've heard this verse, what good does it do for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? And I ask you, what good does it do for a man to be healthy his entire life, not experience any trials, and go to hell for eternity? It doesn't seem to make any sense that Jesus would put that in front of the other. That wasn't Jesus' point. Here's how I know that. Mark chapter 2. Go ahead and turn just one page over, or maybe it's on the same page, to Mark chapter 2, verse 3. It says that some men came to Jesus, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not hear him, come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, they didn't bring him because he he wanted forgiveness of sins. They brought him because he couldn't walk, right? It's like, wait, what in the world? That's not what I needed. I, I need to be able to walk. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit, he knew what they were thinking, That they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? Well, let's ask that question. What's easier? Anybody can say, Hey, your sins are forgiven you. We can't really tell if it's been done or not, right? Not until eternity. But who can say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? So in order to show them that, he says that, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and walk. Go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Jesus takes care of our tangible needs, to show that we have a more important intangible need, to us anyway, that He is also able and willing to meet if only we'll ask Him to. Let me ask you Do you ask God to deal with your physical needs? Do you ask Him to be there with you when you're struggling with your co worker and you can't get along with them? Do you ask Him to be there when you're really having a hard day and you can, just can't take it anymore? Do you ask Him to heal you when you got a two week you know, you've had a cold for two weeks. He wants us to do that. He wants us, he wants to be there for us in that need. He wants us to trust in him. He's able to do those things. But more so, do you ask him to forgive you of your sins? For those of us that have a walk with Jesus, we still sin, by the way. We need forgiveness continually, and he wants to do that. And and every time he's willing to forgive us, if we turn from that thing and turn to him, But there's also the case where many people want to be healed by God, and there were many in that crowd that wanted to be healed by God, but had no intention of ever following Him. Do you seek His hand, or do you seek His face, who He is? Let me encourage you, seek His face. Seek who He is. All those other things will be added. He asked the disciples, He asked the crowd, He said, you know, do not the sparrows of the field get fed by God every day? Do they not have a place to live? Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll supply all your needs. Food and shelter, that's really all we need. All the other stuff is is just on top of it. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to gather. Thank you for uh, just giving us a place and a space that's warm. Thank you for the fellowship. I pray that as your word has affected me, that it would affect those that are in here. Lord, for those of us that are quick to pray for ourselves, Lord, teach us how to pray for others and intercede for them. Help us to pray for the sick, even our mother-in-laws. And uh, Lord, for those of us that are are in need of physical healing, Lord, I pray that you'd meet us in those needs and that we would rely upon you for them. Uh, But for those of us that have been looking for the physical needs and haven't dealt with the spiritual need, I pray for salvation to happen in this house today. Lord, set the captives free. uh, Heal the brokenhearted. uh, Deal with us in the spots that we're at because we know you're able and we know you can relate with us. Lord, thank you for your word that is able to pierce down into our souls and and deal with the issues that no one else knows about. I pray that that would happen tonight. Uh, But Lord, more than anything, I thank you for your son that we'll get to celebrate next week giving His life, and not just dying on the cross, but rising again, showing us that He had power. And and not only that, but showing us that, that You were the one that raised Him, that He was accepted, and that His payment for our sins has been fully accepted. So, Lord, uh, minister to Your people tonight. Lord, thank You for a place. Thank You for a space. And, Lord, I just pray for safety as everyone goes home. But, Lord, if there's somebody in here that needs to surrender their life to You, I pray that it would happen tonight. And that they wouldn't leave this place without knowing that they can know that they can know that they're yours. In Jesus' name.